Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. In the golden age of television and advertising, music's role is more important than ever. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Today we look at music on television. Then Greg drops a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, why are we talking about television on the radio? (laughs) You know, I think it's no exaggeration to say that what's happening in television right now is akin to what happened in, I don't know, Liverpool, 1964, London and New York, 76, Seattle in 1991. Things are really blowing up artistically. We're going to look at the role music is playing. That's later. But first, we have some music news. That is Paul McCartney at Lollapalooza. The Lollapalooza Music Festival in Grant Park was just completed in Chicago. 300,000 people over three days, Jim. One of the biggest music festivals in North America. It has turned into an annual event that sells out even before the headliners are announced. It's an incredible marketing machine that they've got going. Festivals have become a big thing now for these big corporations that are running the concert business. This is where a large amount of revenue is concentrated with these major festivals around the country, both celebrating EDM, rock music, what have you. They are the big ticket sellers. Chicago is one of the biggest in the world with Lollapalooza. And, you know, this 100,000 people a day, what are they coming to see? The large majority of this audience is under the age of 30, many under the age of 25 and 20. It is the millennial audience. And you can start to see Lollapalooza getting far, far away from its alternative rock Generation X roots in the early 90s. You know, when it was reconceived as a destination festival in 2005, they, they wanted to hang on to that moniker a little bit longer. But now it is definitely skewing towards that EDM generation. You are seeing a huge number of fans gathering at the Perry stage where a lot of these contemporary DJs and electronic musicians and hip-hop artists are playing, and that's a huge draw. An artist like McCartney is an outlier, you know, you plus mm-hmm. 70, he's a baby boomer. Yes, he, you know, speaks to a, a, a cross-generational audience, 
but he's the exception rather than the rule. Greg, people over a certain age don't necessarily like standing on their feet for 10 hours in a dusty softball field, baking under the sun, or being driven out of the park. It was evacuated for the second time in its history by a freak thunderstorm for about an hour. You know, it's a lot of hassle to invest. You know, you can stay in your backyard. Yeah. You can stream it on the web. Yeah, it's a festival for 19-year-olds. There's no doubt about it. That's the audience that they are catering to more and more. What's interesting to me, Jim, is that you see an artist like a McCartney or a Metallica inevitably headlining some of these huge festivals because there is a question. Is the millennial audience, is the millennial generation of bands and artists going to be able to produce a stadium-filling act of the level of a McCartney or a Metallica. Yes, you could say maybe yeah. Taylor Swift, a few others. Yeah, but see, that's Florence not, and the Machine did a headlining that, gig. That's not what it's about, Greg. Right. Mom and Dad would be reluctant to let you go to a quote-unquote rave, right? Because the association with drugs and the dancing, right? Whereas if you're going to Grand Park, to Lollapalooza, you're spending all your time in what is essentially the rave tent. Right. EDM, you know, the family acceptable word for electronic dance music. There's drugs involved. There were several hundred ambulance rides of underage drinking and, and drug overdosed young people to the local hospitals. Right. There were, there were several dozen arrests. It should be pointed out that, you know, a, a Kenny Chesney concert, a country artist, uh, you know, when he's doing a big show, you know, will have a similar amount of, of parking lot drinking and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, there's access there as well. I did a story years ago. One of the worst shows to ensure was a Frank Sinatra show because people <laughs> drank and they were older people and there were a lot of broken hips. I, seriously, the insurance company said broken hips at Frank Sinatra shows. <laughs> I think, Jim, you know, what we're seeing here is festivals are really a child of the 20th century. They were invented. In you know the '60s and '70s, you kind of wonder: Does it have to be rethought? It does is the concept of the festival headliner even exist anymore? You know, can the fe- can the rock festival, can the pop music festival, be reinvented for the 21st century audience? I think it's going through a transition phase now, Jim. Where 10 years from now, the character of a music festival will be very different from what it is now. What do you think? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is Van Halen's Right Now, famously used in a commercial for Crystal Pepsi in the early 90s. This week, we're looking at the changing role of music on television, and a big part of that story is how songs are used in advertising. We're joined today by Gabe McDonough, executive producer at Moss Music and Strategy. Gabe's no stranger in the world of advertising. He placed music in commercials for McDonald's, Apple, and many other big corporations. Gabe, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks. I've been harsh on this subject many times. I've been harsh on you, Gabe. Uh, <laughs> it was not personal. In 2013, you did a panel at South by Southwest on this issue of bands selling music to advertising. And, and you know, the quote that sticks with me, I went back to double-check it. It can be a nice payday when a musician gets some money but mostly it's the brand that benefits. The big corporate, global, international, I would add evil, company gets more out of the deal than the artist. The priority for the brand is that they always, they're going to want to have, make a great commercial, right? Their priority is not to break a band. But in getting great music for a commercial, 
they can often give a band really, really good exposure, I think. You know, in the last decade, more and more artists have been selling their music to advertisers so they have enough money to keep making music. Yeah. Do you think the extra cash is a big pull for artists in the age of free downloads and internet streaming? You know, this isn't like, uh, you know, life-changing money for anybody, I I think, at this point. I mean, it can be a nice chunk of change, but... Still, if you're a huge artist, the the amount of money that ends up in your pocket is is you know it's gonna even though it's more it's gonna feel like less. And if you're a smaller artist, you're like okay, this is a good chunk of change, but it doesn't mean I can, you know, quit quit working. Yeah, and I I also think artists have to look at this in terms of you know long term view. What does it mean for their career? Because there there are fans who don't care. I'm thinking about an artist like Feist. One two three four, huge success as an ad. Also as a song. One, two, three, four, five, six, nine, ten. Money can't buy you back the love that you have there. But I don't hear a lot of people clamoring for the new Feist album. I, I think if people mention the word Feist now, they th- say, oh yeah, that Apple ad. I think people, maybe they remember Feist for 1, 2, 3, 4. I don't know that they necessarily remember her specifically for that Apple ad. But when you think about an ad breaking a song like that, I don't know that that phenomenon is that easy to even repeat anymore. There aren't as many concentrated eyeballs on on, on TV just watching things again and again. So and It really strikes Greg and me uh, that millennials, people younger than us, are not really bothered by this issue. They seem to tune out commercials completely when they're watching TV. Yeah. How do you reach this younger population when they're immune to advertising? They, they tune in hard to those brands that they really like, and then they tune out the rest. They really don't want to be interrupted with the stuff that they don't care about. And so that's the, I think that that's something with, that the advertising business as a whole is kind of wrestling with right now. You know, Gabe, one of the uh, reasons we were eager to have you on to talk about this subject is because you do know art <laughs> and you do know music. Thank I, you. You know, um, I, I, you've done some very artful, uh, had a hand in doing some very artful commercials. But you look at a song like Do You Realize? And when mm-hmm. a computer company used it for a famous commercial, uh, The Green Room, where mm-hmm. all these characters, you know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Babe Ruth, uh, mm-hmm. Penn and Teller are sitting in the green room and then the door opens and it says, Flaming Lips, you're up. I mean, it was it was a commercial for the Flaming Lips, right? Flaming Lips, you're up. Introducing the Media Center PC from HP, powered by the Intel Pentium 4 processor. Your TV, music, photos, and videos, all living happily together inside one powerful home computer with the Intel Pentium 4 processor. Call or visit one of these retailers. But that same song, which is about the death of Wayne's father, an existential mm-hmm. crisis prompted yeah. by by the loss of a loved one, was used in a car commercial that was just, you know, horribly ineffective. How does a band make sure that this actually will be something that makes sense with who we are, with our brand? Only the band can make that decision. So the band always is, is consulted. And they get the concepts, and they may not see the final spot, but, they, you know, they get the concepts and, and the scripts, and they look at it, and then... It's up to them to go, okay, does does this fit with my intentions for the song, or does it matter? So so give me some examples of commercials that you thought worked as art. Well, do you know what? There was one that just, just recently came out, Sophie and the song Lemonade, which is this really, it's, it's a bananas electronic song. And it was used in, surprise, surprise, a, a commercial for Lemonade for McDonald's. Lemonade, le, le, lemonade. 
Real strawberries. Real lemonade. Blended. Or over ice. Get together with the refreshing new real lemonades from a cafe made with no artificial flavors. What what I liked about it though was that the whole like if you look at this this band's um, aesthetic, it's like clean white backgrounds with like a really crisp, shiny yellow tube slide. It's this very like sugary kind of aesthetic, and and I just thought I felt like that was like an extension of like the original intention for the art, like hyper real pop culture, and and what better way to to do that than being a McDonald's ad? I was kind of like, yeah, okay. Hmm. I get it. That works on some uh, a couple levels for me. Are these supervisors more savvy and hip to presenting it in an artful way as opposed to just sort of cramming it? Hey, look, listen to that chorus. It kind of makes sense with this product. Let's uh, let's let's cram it down everybody's throat because it's a familiar song. It seems like there's a little bit more thought put into the artistic side of it. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's intention that 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 I work with. Nobody goes in like, oh, let's just throw this away. It's no matter what the product, these guys go in and they really want to try and make it as artistic as they can. And, you know, it doesn't always come out that way. But I think in general, the intention's there. Somewhere between the glacier hiking, the dog sledding, the train tours, and the rock wall, it hits you. This is way more than a cruise. Royal Caribbean to Alaska. Get out there. We're talking to Gabe McDonough about music, advertising, and branding. He's an executive producer now at Moss. He knows the advertising world well. All right, so now let me ask the music lover in you. I hear Iggy Pop's Lust for Life on a cruise commercial, and it pains (laughs) my heart, man. I don't know, man. It's like that song, the appeal of that song for me, or some of the the genius of that song, was always the rub of the subject matter against that bouncy kind of bubblegummy beat anyways, so... It didn't it didn't drive me nuts like it drove a lot of people nuts. We were talking earlier, Gabe, about the responsibility of the artist, but but here's the eight hundred pound gorilla example. Yeah. Um, you know, Volkswagen uses Nick Drake's a Pink Moon in yeah. a commercial. Nick Drake famously recorded that song at a point where he was so depressed he had to lie prone in a dark studio on, on his back to sing into the microphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, And he was a meticulous artist who, who disdained commercial uh, business. He's dead. He committed suicide. His family sells right. the song. Uh, yeah. Like, if you're an artist, you have to put it in your will. You know, you, you shall not deface my art in the future. Yeah. Or I, I mean, I, I would. Yeah, that was the uh, the Goldie Blocks thing with the Beastie Boys. They ran into oh, yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Right. That was literally in the will. Don't ever license my song. So yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and I'm sure that Nick Drake wasn't even thinking about those kind of things. And it, it just seemed it must have seemed like a total impossibility at that point. And, and yeah, it certainly I, wasn't as commonplace back then as no, it is now. No, certainly certainly not. And and you know, we could probably just we could debate whether he might have wanted his heirs to have the money regardless. But um yeah, that's an interesting one. So I written on a so it say Bingo Moon 
I agree 100% with Jim when we talk about we're emotionally invested in these songs. You know, the Flaming Lips, Do You Realize, a beautiful, beautiful song in its original incarnation on that album, somehow corrupted by its use in anything other than that original context. You know, emotional connection. I think every listener has sort of felt that at some point, betrayed by an artist or an ad that sort of re, uh, recontextualizes a piece of music that they fell in love with for very different reasons. Part of me is like, is that the same instinct that gives me a rub when everybody starts liking some band that only I used to know about? And, and you know, it's the artist's decision on what they want to do with their music, but I would hope that they factor into that how how their fans, mm-hmm. you know, their, their responsibility to their fans, because I don't think it's fair to say that an artist uh, doesn't doesn't shouldn't consider shouldn't consider their their fans at all in their decisions. You know, well, there's also the level of what's appropriate. If the National Rifle Association comes to you and wants to buy Moby's cover of "That's When I Reach for My Revolver," do you bring that opportunity to the artist? Is there any kind of line that's drawn here? Yeah, I I would hope there's I hope would hope there's a line. You know, it's it's I, I just see it as my job and and well. Here I, I, I'm spitting a similar line here, but I, I think I kind of hold true to this. Is I always say I'll I'll take I'm gonna just t- as long as you're not offended. Whenever I meet a new artist and they say you know I'm interested in this world or whatever, it's just be like I always say I'm gonna bring you any opportunity, no matter how crazy or out of character it might seem for you, and then I'm gonna leave it up to you to say yes or no. And as long as you don't get offended. You can just give me a quick yes or no. I, it's my job, just if there's these opportunities out there, I'm going to bring them to artists and just say, hey, are you interested? You're totally free to say no. I get it if you don't. You're a big boy or girl. You make the decision. Yeah, man. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's work, you know. That's when I reach for my We've been talking to advertising expert Gabe McDonough. Gabe, thanks for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Yeah, pleasure. Hope to see you guys next time in Chicago. After a quick break, we'll shift gears a bit to look at the role music plays within TV programming itself. Then I'll put another quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
party tonight. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and he's Jim DeRogatis. Today, we're taking a look at television and the role that music plays in it, both in terms of advertising and in programming. As TV watchers, we're not alone in observing a huge increase in the quality and sophistication in programming in recent years. We're talking about The Wire, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. Many are calling this the golden age of television. As critics, we can't help but notice how important music is in making these shows so unique. It's thought-provoking. It's addictive. You know, music sets the mood. It places you in a certain era, and sometimes the song carries the actual storytelling along with or better than the dialogue. To discuss how the use of music is changing in this new era for TV, we've enlisted two professional television critics, Mo Ryan of the Huffington Post and Matt Zollersites of New York Magazine, Vulture.com, and RogerEbert.com. Matt, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. And Mo, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. What do you think is responsible for this television renaissance, and when did it all begin? Well, I don't know where this the increased musical sophistication of TV began. I suspect probably around the time that Miami Vice hit the airwaves, which I think was 31 years ago. That was the first TV show, regular series, that I think made music an active participant. I mean, sometimes a very active participant to the point where they were designing entire episodes around mm-hmm. particular songs. Like I remember they had Glenn Fry playing a role on an episode called Smuggler's Blues, and he, com- he composed all of this original music. So it was almost like this crazy Glenn Fry operetta or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and TV shows have done a lot of really, really interesting work with using music to tell the story, to enhance the mood, to comment on the characters and their situations. You have something like the opening of the second season of Mad Men, mm-hmm. which begins with a montage of people getting ready to go out and face the world, and it's to uh, Let's Twist Again. wonderful song on a lot of levels because they used Chubby Checker's original twist in season one and Let's Twist Again was an obvious attempt to cash in on the success of the twist and it's like a way of saying to the audience we're aware that you think we're just going to (laughs) repeat ourselves this year and then they go on to do something else From the dusty mesa Also, I find that a lot of these music producers are digging deeper. Did you ever think you'd see a day when a show like True Detective on HBO opens with a handsome family track? As you've seen in True Detective, that is a cinematic show, especially the first season. There's a film vocabulary being utilized there. And what I really found with that show is that when it's working, it condenses so much into a very few gestures just a, a song, just some images, and it allows those to kind of percolate in your mind. And to me, that's an incredibly sophisticated use. I mean, another show that does that, that I think really well is The Americans, yeah. which has a deep cut, you know, in every, say, that's in a every deep episode. Cut show. And it's 
brilliant. It's brilliantly used. I mean, be- there was that one uh, Yaz song that was used at the end of an episode. So I dress for every situation. Moving through the doorway of a nation. It was so poignant on so many levels. It was perfect for the era. It's a great mm-hmm. song on its own. It really told the story of what the characters were feeling. And that's a great show that, like Friday Night Lights, knows when their dialogue would be an incredible mistake at this point. Let's just allow a mood to arise. And that, to me, is the hallmark of music used well. But I have to talk about a pet peeve in that regard. Like That's the apex of how you'd close out an episode with kind of a mic drop of music use. Literally, I think that there's now tropes that are so overused that I just want to bang my head into a wall, like Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah. (laughs) Like, I was seriously going to stab the next music supervisor that used that because there was a few times when it was actually effective, but then it was like, okay, no, you you have to pay me a royalty if you use this ever again. What is it about directors? Do you think it's just because their sensibility is so informed by music, or are they bringing in outside people like a T-Bone Burnett? What is contributing to this atmosphere where music and the soundtrack is almost as important as the images on the screen in TV? I have this theory that TV lags about 50 years behind in development because it really got started as a medium about 50 years after motion pictures. So what we're seeing now is it's at approximately the same developmental stage that movies were at in about the mid-60s. That's my theory anyway, and that's why we're seeing a lot of the same kind of evolutionary things happen at the level of film storytelling, and that includes the use of music. And it's really only in the last 10 or 15 years, and I think HBO is a big driving force behind this, that they discovered that music could be used in a multi-layered way. Mm. Like it's doing one thing that's an obvious thing, but it's also doing two or three other things, and then maybe there's yet a fourth thing that you don't notice until the second time you watch the episode. And one of the best examples that I can think of, Mo just brought it up, The Americans. The pilot episode of The Americans, they used a Fleetwood Max tusk during a chase scene, which was brilliant. But there was another choice that I thought was even better, which is the sex scene between the two of them where they kind of reconcile was set to Phil Collins in the air tonight, which was, of course, memorably used in the pilot from Miami Vice, which we've mentioned here as like a great revolutionary show in the use of pop music. And the people who made The Americans obviously saw Miami Vice. They obviously know that that's one of the most famous uses of pre-existing pop in the history of television. And by using it, they were basically saying to anybody who knows their television history, we got the stones to use this song. Even though the song has been marked property of Miami Vice for, <laughs> for you know, 30 frickin' years, we're using it and we're going to claim it. We're going to put our own stamp on it. And that's when I set up and took notice because, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. to quote Pulp Fiction, that's a bold statement. 
<laughs> yeah, they're throwing yeah, down yeah. a marker with that. About 15 years ago, there was one revolution when HBO and then later followed by FX, AMC, other networks really opened up the dialogue of what TV could be about and who it could be about. I point to Orange is the New Black and Transparent as being the next wave of that. Operator, or could you help me place this call? See the number on the matchbook is old and faded. Because not only were they not about heterosexual white men and their problems, which, you know, <laughs> obviously that's the most interesting thing that any of us could ever encounter, but these were, um, I'm not bitter. She said sarcastically. <laughs> I'm not bitter. But I think they're really in the last three years alone, there's been a sort of a secondary explosion, if you will, and transparent is this, you know, using deep cuts by 70s artists by like there's a really heartfelt commitment to emotional truth in that show and I think that they are able to choose songs that really reflect that earnest and passionate kind of feel Us being critics and us being music critics, I want to flip this a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about some TV shows that are allegedly portraying the music world. <laughs> Matt, Uh-oh. Empire. What well, the you know, heck is going on with Empire? <laughs> Courtney Love and, and soap opera and uh, hip-hop. You know, a good friend of mine wrote a piece years ago about, I don't know if you saw that Mel Gibson movie about the Aztecs. Apocalyptic. Yeah, like Apocalypto. That was the name of it. But he was saying, like, criticizing this movie on the basis of whether or not it's faithful to the record of the era of Spanish conquest is kind of beside the point. Because <laughs> this, is a, this is a nightmare. This is a dream. It's basically, it's science fiction. And there yeah. is a sense in which everything is a fantasy. And that's the way I feel about Empire. It's basically a fantasy. It's as much of a fantasy as Gotham. Empire, Nashville, like I watch those things, and like Nashville has the same title as a Robert Altman film, but the Robert Altman film was actually this culturally anthropological sort of thing that was trying to be true to Nashville in 1975, and like this show is really not. Like it's Dallas with music, and I think really uh, <laughs> it is. It's Dallas yeah, with music, music. it's yeah, well in Nashville, said. you know. No, 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 no. Mama? No! Honestly, probably Empire could also be described that way. Well, I no, I, I definitely agree with Matt that both of these shows, to me, are in the frothy nighttime soap tradition. And there's just a huge confusion in Empire about what era it is. You know, this place ain't half as bad as where we live in Philly. <laughs> but me and your daddy still made some number one hits in there. We sure did. Shoot rats in between takes and all. <laughs> All right, before we get off the topic, best show ever on TV about the music industry that did it right. I say Love Monkey, a show that nobody mm-hmm. even remembers. But I Tom remember Cavanaugh, it. Remember <laughs> about the, the indie label? The, kid. the hipster indie yeah. label, Tom Cavanaugh, like pre-Brooklyn. Okay, yeah. that's a deep cut. <laughs> All right, that's a deep Teddy cut. Geiger. Matt, have you got one? <laughs> well, I don't know if this is in the ballpark of what you're looking for, but for me, it's always going to be WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That was wow. great. I mean, and I I come from a family musician, so I grew up in and around recording studios and and radio stations. And for me, that was like watching a documentary. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me, I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. 
Cincinnati, WKRP. I mean, it was so yeah. realistic. And I learned a lot about Paola promotions, yeah. concerts. They did that whole episode about the Who concert where all those people got trampled. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of very realistic touches. They had things about Venus Flytrap's Vietnam service and all this, like, period-specific 70s stuff. And then they also made room for, as God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and part of the show was so authentic to the era that they later couldn't get the rights to a lot of those songs. And as with many... Now DVD is going the way of the dodo, I suppose, but there was just this huge problem getting certain TV shows out on DVD or certain seasons. They had to change the music in some cases, I think, which they did with WKRP. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Now, in terms of more recent shows, I think Mad Men was really effective in using music to set the mood and the era. In 2012, they even used the single best, weirdest, most twisted Beatles song ever, Tomorrow Never Knows. And then they pay something like $250,000 to use it. It was a quarter million dollars they had to pay, and it was completely worth it. I love the fact that Matthew Weiner went to AMC and said, we need to have a Beatles song in this. It's going to cost a lot of money. And they said yes, and then he buys Tomorrow Never Knows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, much respect, much respect. Yeah. And that was absolutely the right song. And that show had a knack for picking exactly the right song. Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. What about reality TV? How do shows like American Idol or The Voice come into play here? Well, <laughs> well Sideshow. Sorry. Sideshow Bob stepping on the rake. That's That should have been the noise. When I was kind of like in my earliest days as a critic, American Idol was, I, everyone called it the death star of television. It was enormously popular. But with anything, I, I actually think American Idol's decline tracks with a larger diffusion of what reality TV is. Reality TV, as we know, is just as scripted and just as channeled. But I think it's just become old hat. And I mean, as much as something like The Voice can get a good number on its finale or whatever, there's just a lot of it. One of the ways it went wrong was I don't think they turned the boat quick enough because they they were pushing that Mariah sort of mm. vocal gymnastics yeah. stuff. The, but one of the greatest TV moments, I'm not kidding, that I've ever seen was Fantasia Barino on American Idol doing Summertime from Porgy and Bess. Unbelievable. Great. But there were very few moments like that for me throughout the run of American Idol. But I also didn't like how they, as you were saying, they foisted this really plastic, one-size-fits-all definition of what a pop star was on every single person who came on the show. And that's why I do prefer The Voice, probably because the people who are the judges on The Voice are themselves talent scouts who are performers. Like, they're very attentive to not 
forcing people to be something they're not naturally inclined to be. Like they're actually looking at these these contestants in the way that one would look at children you were trying to raise and say, what have I got here? Who are they inclined to be? How can I help them be the best version of that? What you saw with American Idol is that you saw the residue, the last gasp of the mm-hmm. 20th century music industry mm-hmm. as epitomized by somebody like Clive Davis, who had you right. know a very big behind-the-scenes role in that. So I'm wondering, is there still room ahead for a competition show that more accurately represents where the culture is today in terms of music? I'll tell you what I would love to see more of, and I've been banging the drum for this ever since American Idol debuted. I want to see the process by which somebody evolves from a talented but unpolished performer into a polished one who has a style. Like they've discovered their style. They're starting to learn who they are. That is a really great story. Kind of a project runway, if you will. It's a, a, yeah, it's yeah. a great, great story. And what I find is too many of these shows, even if they think they're paying attention to it, to that process, they're not paying as much attention as I would like. I feel like they're skipping over the real story to create this phony suspense of the judge gives somebody notes on a performance that wasn't quite there. The next episode, they come back and suddenly they're great. Mm-hmm. I want to see how they got from being just okay to being great and impressing everyone. That's the real story, and TV doesn't want to tell that story for the most part. Obviously, one of the biggest stories of the last few years has been the rise of female-dominated pop and R&B. And I think that, like, if Beyonce came out with a show, I'd watch it. You know, I mean, I mean for real. Because I, yeah, mean, yeah. I think that she, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, like, they, they kind of represent a bunch of threads within music. And I just think that, like, the idea of there being an R&B focus show, that's kind of what Empire is, really. That show is a monster because I think there's a huge appetite for something that is not the soul-crushing machine that, you know, American Idol was. We'll continue our conversation with Matt Zoller-Seitz and Mo Ryan about music and television in a minute. Then I'll add another track to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit from Lana Del Rey's controversial performance on Saturday Night Live in 2012, which generated a lot of conversation on the internet and around the water cooler for weeks about how supposedly wooden she appeared. We're speaking to Huffington Post TV critic Mo Ryan and New York Magazine TV and film critic Matt Zoller-Seitz about music on television. 
Now I want to ask, how do you see music in television in late-night programming like Saturday Night Live and The Tonight Show? I think Show? it's remarkable that it has persisted in any way because now we have the Internet and everything is a clip. And that goes for even things like The Daily Show, The Tonight Show, and, yeah. and on and on and on, yeah. CBS Sunday Morning, you name it. It's all about providing clips for you to put on your Facebook page. But musical performances are maybe one of the reasons why they persisted is they tend to be between two and four minutes in length. And they have a self-contained narrative, which is the performance itself. And mm. there are fun things you can do with the presentation. It's fun to talk about what the performer wore how the number was staged. Was it staged in a very bare-bones way with just the musicians playing, or did they have some kind of a lighting element or a set element or something that, interesting that was happening with the staging or the cutting? I love seeing somebody like a Kanye West go on and do a number, and he stages it as if he's like part of an installation at the Whitney Biennial. I dig <laughs> that. I think it's great. I would actually argue it's more important than ever. More important. Yeah. I mean, there's a greater diffusion of places where you can kind of get publicity, but it's harder by the same token to get traction. And I think if someone forwards your Fallon clip, it's more it's a more key component for anyone trying to get a band continuing traction. And I actually think it's it's related to the changing in the guard and late night. And what those guys know is two things. They are there to provide clips for people to talk about on social media the next morning. And they're there to sell stuff. They're to, they're to sell somebody's movie. They're there to sell a pop song or whatever. And they are very pro that. I mean, the thing is, back in the day when what Letterman first started out, he was a combative guy. What, uh, what can you tell us about your days with the Unabomber? Saturday Night Live still can be a combative element in the culture, but I think there's now much more of an awareness of we got a tap dance for our dinner, even amongst the hosts and the staffs. How do we shift QVC units for somebody? For popular culture. Thank yeah. you. QVC. And there's it nothing, is. That's all know. it is. You're right. You're absolutely right. You're not exaggerating. That's all it's about is selling selling movies, selling TV shows, selling, you know, yeah. and it was always that to a degree. With a smile. But, then you, but you would also <laughs> occasionally get like here, and God, I sound like Abe Simpson compared to you, but... You'd also get, like, Gore Vidal coming on. Are, are you ready to apologize? <clears throat> I would apologize if, uh, if it hurts your feelings. Of course I would. No, it hurts my sense of intellectual pollution. Well, I must say, as, I mean, uh, as an expert, you should know uh, about that. I would like to... <laughs> Let's talk about David Letterman for a minute. I mean, he's a giant in late night, and most of the time he really enjoyed the musical acts on the show. Right, wait, I got four <laughs> words for you. Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> Well, okay, so Letterman's taste can be questionable at times, but the response to that band Future Islands was a guy who was just genuinely enthused about what he was seeing. He was reacting to their performance in real time rather than just helping him sell something. Oh, buddy, come on! Hey, thank you very much. Nice going. How about that? I'll take all of that you got. Future Islands! Letterman's proven that when he doesn't like something, you can see it written all over his face. And it's sort of cool to witness a moment of pure musical enjoyment in late night that's natural and not forced. In the future, everyone's house will be like a little fortress. In the future, everyone's house will be a total entertainment center. Maybe the way to end with an eye toward the future... What's going to happen as everybody continues to have their own video-type podcasts and create on YouTube? I mean, is, is the word TV going to mean anything even in, in five years, in ten years? It's just going to be a chip that gets put in your brain at birth. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I, Amazon's I, already working on I it. I increasingly <laughs> don't see the distinction between watching something on YouTube, watching something on television, and watching a movie. My theory about what TV is and what separates it from movie is that you can watch Sensate or, you know, the OC or whatever it is you want to dig up or watch, you know, in real time. You have that relationship over a period of time with the show and with the characters. I'm incredibly heartened by where it's at because I think more than ever, there's a wider variety of voices who have more of a wider variety of things to say and questions to ask. And Mm -hmm. They're doing that in a wider variety of styles. You cannot say that Orange is the New Black is anything stylistically like Mad Men, but they're both deep and rich and interesting in different ways. Mm-hmm. Matt? Everything's content. Movies are content, podcasts, television shows. I agree with you that television, the word TV doesn't really mean anything anymore because increasingly few people watch television shows on a, a box that sits on a dresser or hangs on their wall. TV is my friend Now, as music critics, Greg and I recommend bands or albums people should be listening to. What are a few shows, old or new, that people should be watching? A show I've been really going to bat for a lot is The Hundred, which you can find on Netflix. And it's a CW show full of pretty young people, so you're probably predisposed to hate it. But it's a really interesting, I call it Battlestar Babies. It's about uh, (laughs) survival and the moral choices therein. And I think it's actually pretty challenging for that. I also really am interested and intrigued by Outlander. Mm. I find myself thinking about that show and writing about it a lot because I just think that the questions that it asks about how men and women relate to each other, how power structures play out in real time. I think that that's within the context of an action-adventure show. It's really fun. I'm re-watching Parks and Rec with my son. <laughs> We're watching it again from the beginning, and I have a whole new appreciation of just how fantastic it is. Some great picks from Mo Ryan. Matt, give us a couple on your end. I have to throw down for the Americans again. Yeah, yeah. what a because, show. Because it is, it's a, it's a low-rated show, and I think it keeps getting renewed just because it's so good that FX can't, in good conscience, cancel something this good. <laughs> Orange is the New Black. I thought that this most recent season might have been the altogether strongest one so far, and it reminds me a lot of MASH in the mm. way that it switches between very broad comedy and really kind of wrenching drama and back again, often within the space of a few minutes, and it does it very well. And then for a rewatch, I would go with MASH, which I've been revisiting recently. And it's extraordinary to watch how sophisticated that show became in the 11 seasons that it was on. And I've been going back and rewatching Mad Men, I think, because I can't face the fact that it's over. None of us can. (laughs) (laughs) I think it jumped the shark in the third season, but what do I know? You're not a TV critic. Come on. All right, we've been talking with Mo Ryan, TV critic for the Huffington Post, and Matt Zollersites from New York Magazine, Vulture.com, and RogerEbert.com. Mo, Matt, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And we want to hear from you. What are some of the shows you think best use music and why? Share your opinions on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. 
You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island, pops a quarter in the jukebox, and plays you a song we can't live without. Greg? What do you got for us? Well, Jim, I started thinking about favorite moments on television for me, and they are few and far between up until this current era. But I'm thinking back to the halcyon days of Saturday Night Live. You know, in the Mm. very early days of the show, it was a must-see not only to see Belushi and Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Gilda Radner, but you also wanted to see what the musical act was going to be and what they were going to do. But that dissipated over the years. The anticipation started to go away when the acts became maybe a little less adventurous and a little bit more hemmed in by whatever restrictions Saturday Night Live was placing on them. One exception to that rule occurred in 1989, and I remember this moment very distinctly. I was at a party with some friends. We were getting ready to go out on a Saturday night. The TV was on in the background with no sound, right? Mm -hmm. And it's Saturday Night Live. It's in the middle of the show. Nobody's really looking at it. And all of a sudden... Neil Young and three guys who look like they just got out of a bar brawl walk on the stage and start playing. And, you know, we're like, okay, turn that up. What is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Neil Young, let's face it, was coming off a pretty lousy decade. I mean, he oh, had really yeah. not made a lot this of music. This for you and, yeah. the, and the robot album. We went from being like super fans to when is he going to make another great album again? Mm-hmm. Well, here it comes. 1989, Saturday Night Live, Neil shows up, leather jacket torn blue jeans, gym shoes, and he is jumping around like an insane person Mm -hmm. on stage playing that black guitar of his. It's incredible performance. He's got Steve Jordan on drums, Charlie Drayton on bass, and Frank Pancho San Pedro on rhythm guitar. From Crazy Horse. He was playing this brand new song that we had not heard yet called Rockin' in the Free World. (laughs) And the chorus is instantly slamming you in the face. Later on, we find out it's a direct reaction to George Bush's inaugural speech. Quoting lines from the Thousand Points of Light, the whole idea of a kinder, gentler machine, you know, this whole notion of that Bush speech really ticked Neil off. And you can hear it in the song. And there's a midsection in the song where he just takes off, focus in especially on that part of the song where Steve Jordan is just slamming those drums. And at this point... Young is flying in and out of camera range. Like, the camera Mm -hmm. is struggling to keep up with him. It is one of the most spontaneous, explosive performances I'd ever seen on live television. And I asked Neil Young later on, what the heck was going on? And he said, you know, we knew we wanted to kill when we came out there. So we just removed ourselves from everything about the show. We didn't watch any of the skits. We didn't mingle with the cast. We went off on our own. He said, I worked out with my trainer before I went on stage (laughs) to get my blood going. He was like in a rage when he went up there. And you could see it. His eyes were just wild. Go to YouTube and watch this and listen to it now. It's Rockin' in the Free World from Saturday Night Live in 1989 by Neil Young.
Neil Young rocking in the free world, 1989 on Greg's Desert Island Jukebox. Mr. Cott, what do we got on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to take a look at under-the-radar music that we really loved. We're going to dig up some buried treasures. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Emily Espinel. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You didn't try to call me. Why didn't you try, didn't you try, didn't you know I was lonely? No matter who I take home, I keep on calling your name. And you, I need you so bad, cause you're the one, babe. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Kevin from Chicago. Just listened to your Grateful Dead dissection. Uh, great, great show. Um, and I, I wanted to add, you know, you mentioned Robert Hunter's lyrics uh, in passing. I think you really missed some of the depth of his lyrics, you know, just really seamless, uh, intelligent literary lyrics, references to Shakespeare and Voltaire and the Bible and Alexander Pope and nursery rhymes and this Western mythology of the U.S. If you look at a song like Ramble on Rose, you've got this incredible just knowledge of American history. Just like... Jack the Ripper Just like Mudge Hand Just like Billy Sunday In a shotgun Ragtime band Just like New York City Just like Jericho Pace the halls And climb the walls really amazing stuff, um, especially when you think about the dead really being kind of a history of American music in general, this country and ragtime and blues, Tin Pan Alley, rock and roll, all this stuff kind of all thrown in one. So, uh, so just thought I'd pass that along. Uh, keep up the good work, guys. Thanks. She's my Hi, Jim and Greg. I'm a fan of your show. Critics are traditionally uh, very caustic and even snarky about the Grateful Dead. Yes, as an old deadhead, I would have to agree that their best years were before 1978. Your critique of this iconic band was, hands down, the best I ever heard. Thank you for spending 40 minutes to make an honest, intelligent critique of this great, if, un- if uneven, band. Hi, this is Brian from Tampa, Florida. I'm calling in response to the Grateful Dead episode. I just wanted to say that I do not understand the Grateful Dead, uh, the obsession with Grateful Dead. They're a trite and unoriginal band, and they have been for 50 years, and I don't get how people are so obsessed with them. They did the psychedelic rock thing poorly. Pink Floyd did it better. They did the progressive rock thing poorly. Yes, and early Pink Floyd did it better. Even with the touch of gray, Tom Petty did it better with that kind of song. 
how they have become so popular just mystifies me because they are an underwhelming band that should never have made it out of San Francisco, much less have become as popular as they as they have. Hopefully, the peace-loving Grateful Dead fans won't come after me with pitchforks. Thanks a lot. Love the show. This is Christian Dunville calling from the Outer Banks of North Carolina. The thing about the dead was the live show, and I'm sorry if, you know, either of you didn't get to see a really good one. I saw quite a few, and they were transcendent, and the whole thing was them and us. It was the circle of energy between the band and the crowd, and it was most of all the most fun that I ever had in my life. Thanks for giving them their props and their due. I think they've been underrated. And uh, those of us that were there, we know why. They were awesome. Anyhow, thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Love your show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.